This podcast includes frank discussions of mature themes that may not be suitable for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. This podcast is intended to provide encouragement and support through personal storytelling. The views expressed are the opinions of the participants and not intended to be medical, legal, clinical, or professional information or advice of any kind. Welcome to the Bubble Hour. 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 Welcome, 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 welcome to the Bubble Hour. I own it. I did that. Not proud, but that was me. And when I face it, I take back a little dignity. Not looking for excuses. I just want to be free from power. Weakness head on me. Jean McCarthy, and you're listening to The Bubble Hour. Hello, and welcome to The Bubble Hour Archives, a treasure trove of episodes ranging from 2012 to 2022. I'm recovery advocate and author Jean McCarthy. I joined The Bubble Hour as a host in season two. Together with other hosts over the years, Ellie, Lisa, Amanda, and Catherine, we all extend to you our gratitude for listening and a heartfelt wish that this podcast will find a welcome home in your recovery toolkit. The resources mentioned on the show are available at thebubblehour.com, including information on the online support group called the BFB, or Booze Free Brigade, often mentioned on the show. Now, if you're hearing this message, you're listening to one of our free archived episodes, and we'll make sure that there are loads of these available for you to enjoy. These are partial versions of the original recordings, and if you want to hear more, you can listen to full versions and the entire back catalog ad-free by joining us on Patreon. So just head to patreon.com slash thebubblehour to learn more. I'll also put a link in the show notes to make it even easier for you to find that. So, all right then, enjoy the show. Hi, everybody. This is Amanda, and welcome to the Bubble Hour, where real people tell stories of alcoholism and recovery. I'm here with my co-hosts, Ellie and Lisa. Hi, Amanda. Hi, ladies. Hey, Amanda. Hi, Lisa. Hi. Tonight's show is about denial. Denial is a defense mechanism that allows a person, despite overwhelming evidence to the contrary, to deny that something is true when, in fact, it is true. It is one of the most powerful and difficult problems that alcoholics and drug addicts face before, during, and after treatment because it is always the thinking that precedes the act of picking up a drink or drug. In researching this topic, I was somewhat surprised to find that there are actually physical components of denial. Over the course of time, drinking and using drugs can cause changes in the brain that affect thought processes and emotions. For example, when the hippocampus, a big word there, which controls <laughs> memory and judgment is damaged, the alcoholic or addict has great difficulty remembering the bad things that happen when they drink or use. In recovery meetings, we often refer to this as our built-in forgetter. <clears throat> Excuse me. This, coupled with impaired judgment, allows them to actually believe that drinking or using drugs is okay. Poor judgment is further compounded by the overstimulation or inhibition of two important neurotransmitters, serotonin and dopamine. Serotonin affects thinking and emotions, while dopamine affects the pleasure and reward center of the brain. When a person drinks or uses drugs excessively, 
The, these neurotransmitters are overstimulated and the body develops a tolerance to them. This causes the individual to need more and more of the substance while they get less and less of an effect. Non-addicted people find it very difficult to understand the thinking and actions of the addict or alcoholic. They just don't get it because their brains are, have not been damaged so their thinking is not organically impaired and they have the capacity to differentiate between the truth and falsehood. Then there are thought patterns of denial. The essential and most basic of all denial is this. I don't have a problem with alcohol or drugs, and the other things that are wrong in my life don't have anything to do with my drinking or using. This erroneous belief gives rise to all sorts of strange twists and turns of thought that are common in addicts and alcoholics. Substance abusers blame others for the negative things that happen in their lives and lie about where they have been and what they have been doing. They live in a fantasy world where they have convinced themselves that their lives are not so bad, despite the loss of jobs, marriages, family, and friends. They say that if only they had more money or if the people in their lives would understand them, then everything would be okay. They do not acknowledge, nor do they connect with the fact that drinking and using drugs have become the root cause of their current problems. This is denial. I, yeah. I know for me, I, I was having problems in my marriage as my drinking was progressing, and I just couldn't see. For me, it was just that he was being a jerk. Mm-hmm. And my drinking wasn't that bad that, at that point all the time, or at least that's what I told myself. Mm-hmm. But things were really, really not going well, and we were fighting all the time, and I could not see that it had anything to do with my drinking at all. How about you, ladies? Well, for me, I don't think, I definitely was in denial about six years ago. This is just one of many examples, but this was six years ago, I would say. I met my friends for what had become our normal drinks, which was actually drinks thinly disguised as dinner. And it was kind of a weekly routine. And as usual, when the waitress attempted to take my order, I was like, oh, I ate at home with the kids. I'll just have dessert and maybe some wine. Of course, hours and much wine later, I did not hesitate to jump into my car and drive home the 10 miles to my house. And I guess probably based on outward appearances, I suppose I did probably look capable of driving myself safely home. I certainly drove home after drinking my way through the evening with abandon. I was almost at my exit by my neighborhood when I saw flashing lights behind me. And... I knew I was being pulled over, and of course, my heart stopped, and I was scared to death, but, and despite having maybe at least, I would say, six or eight drinks, maybe more, I remember asking myself, why am I being pulled over? I'm not speeding, and Mm. so I'm Mm. pulled over, and the policeman comes over, and he asked me if I had been drinking, and I just said yes. I mean, just the arrogance. When I look back on that, I can't believe that I was just so... I didn't even try to convince them otherwise. And so then he asked me to step out of my car, and I had to do the entire sobriety test. And that's what I always thought happened on the movies, you know, to alcoholics, not me. And the whole time I was doing it, I was already kind of justifying my behavior in my head. I, I remember... I wasn't even trying that hard to appear sober. It was almost as if I told myself that I was the victim in this situation instead of the innocent drivers who were 
unfortunate enough to be on the road with me that night. And I remember thinking, how dare this guy pull me over for just having a couple of drinks with my friends? I mean, really, who does he think he is? And I deserve those drinks. And my life is so stressful. How dare he humiliate me by making me do this sobriety test right by my neighborhood where someone I know could see me? Oh, my gosh. I was just really full of arrogance. and But somehow I maintained my little polite good girl facade as I almost always did. And that's... It was very bizarre, and I will never know why, but instead of me, instead of taking me to jail, as I deserved, after failing that test miserably, the breathalyzer test and the, the regular, what's it called, the field sobriety test, where you stand outside mm-hmm. of your yep. car and have to yep. walk Longer. the line, say <laughs> the alphabet, all these things, I'm like doing the whole entire test. And, I mean, I was just, I don't even know what, anyway, but I, I somehow managed to be polite, I guess. And instead of taking me to jail, like, like I said, I definitely deserved. He opened the door to his car, to the back of his car, and he asked me to get in. And, you know, I was a really good bs So there's no telling. I don't remember what all I told him, but whatever it was, he believed me. and Or maybe he didn't. I don't know. But he told me he was driving me home instead of to jail. <sighs> and I don't. I, to this day, I have no idea why this guy made that decision, but by this time, it was really late, and my husband and children were sleeping, and the officer walked me up to my front door, and that's when I tried to talk him out of telling my husband, and I was certain that my charm (coughs) would uh, work, but it didn't, and he made me ring the doorbell, and at that time, my children were four and two, and they were woken up, and my husband came to the door. And the policeman came inside my house, and I remembered I offered him a Coke, and he took it. And then he told my husband what the breathalyzer showed, that my blood alcohol was extremely high. And I don't remember what it was, but whatever it was was very high. And he's, I remember him saying I could have killed myself or someone else driving that night. And then the next day, I remember feeling irritated that we had to, at the inconvenience of having to go and get my car. I mean, mm-hmm. I could have been so grateful, mm-hmm. and so that could have been such a huge wake-up for me. But I also felt some remorse that when I look back on it, I, I think my remorse really came for, from the fact that I got caught. And I remember thinking that my husband was possibly going to be more aware and maybe make it hard for me to go to my little weekly drunk dinners. And I think that's around the time I decided to start drinking at home instead of going out with friends, which was kind of like mm-hmm. my bent into hell, and then despite the fact that I could have and should have gone to jail due to drinking irresponsibly, I was still not ready to admit to myself or anyone that I had a problem, even despite the fact that my children saw a policeman bring their mom to their front door in the middle of the night due to irresponsible drinking, I was still not ready to reach into the deepest parts and bring my alcoholism to the surface, and after that, there were a few less dramatic examples that followed over the next five years or so before I finally surrendered. But I would say that was my first real sign. I mean, if you can't see that there's a problem after something like that happens, obviously you're in denial. And even two years later, actually, I watched my own father die due to alcoholism. And I still did not, I just couldn't grasp that I, that I too was an alcoholic. And there were, my father was dying. What more proof did I need that apparently a lot more. 
I think I knew for at least 15 years before I actually quit drinking in the deepest, most unvisited parts of my soul that my relationship with alcohol was not normal. And denial allowed me to somehow keep this vague awareness from surfacing to the top until months after I was sober. And I think for a moment, there was just a very brief moment while I was still drinking when I had just a tiny bit of clarity. And somehow, some way, I knew I had to face it. And I had no idea what I was going to do. But finally, after some sobriety, that deep, dark place in my soul that I had kept so locked up came rushing to the surface. And finally, the denial was gone. But then came the harsh reality, recovery. And I had to change everything. And it hasn't been easy, but it's been worth it. And my plan is just to keep going one tiny little day at a time. And that's probably, that's, I don't know, it's not a huge bottom. It wasn't anything that really probably would stand out to a lot of alcoholics. But for me, that was a pretty big bottom. Do you ever wish for a little bit of recovery inspiration on the go? Tiny Bubbles is a new podcast that brings you the best bits of the Bubble Hour podcast in quick little episodes, just 15 minutes long, but packed with wisdom, insight, and encouragement to live your life wholeheartedly and alcohol-free. Look for Tiny Bubbles wherever you get podcasts and subscribe today. Tiny Bubbles. Little bits of recovery goodness brought to you by the Bubble Hour. Sometimes all you need is a little pep talk so you can get back to living that beautiful life you're building. When I was actively drinking and also even probably in a good part of my early recovery, my moral compass was really centered around getting whether or not I got caught, not around what Mm -hmm. my behavior patterns were. I think that's because my... Right, I drank for whatever, 20 years, and so when I, if I look back to how old I was when my drinking really started to take off, that's kind of where my moral development stopped, mm-hmm. you know, and it's, it's not that I wasn't a productive and professional member of society that had nothing right. to do with it, I just really thought if I, and the second thing that you said that I, that I could identify with, you mentioned the arrogance, and I, I, I mean, people have asked now? me, but, the arrogance of kind of like, oh, the you know, the, oh, yeah. how dare the cop pull me over or something. How dare he? That, that's a huge symptom, I think, of denial because it would, wouldn't you rather feel arrogant than sheepish or humiliated? Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Or, or, or have to stop drinking? I, reckon I had this yeah. one, somebody was talking to me recently about how you could possibly be sneaking drinking and still be in denial. And I had this memory came to me about how I had reached the point where I was actually needing to drink just to go, I had to go into work. My kids were five and two, and it was coming to the end of my drinking, but I had to go into Boston where I worked probably once or twice a month. And I was sitting on the middle seat of a commuter rail train with a normal person, quote-unquote, on either side of me with their Dunkin' Donuts coffee and their newspaper, and I'm in the middle with my Dunkin' Donuts styrofoam mug full of Chardonnay, Mm -hmm. and I'm just drinking it. I'm just drinking it on the way. (laughs) And that's astonishing enough, but what's even more astonishing is that I can remember looking around that train and thinking, these poor people, they used to drink coffee. You know, that's how 
twisted. And to me, that's really sort of an organic dysfunction in my brain because I can't imagine that kind of thought pattern now in sobriety. But I understand how powerful this disease can get a hold of us where we twist the way that we would normally think into sort of fitting our whatever we needed to fit so we can keep drinking. And the, the last thing I'll mention before we move on, because I know we have a lot to cover, but I, we both sort of talked about, or Lisa, again, you talked about how, you know, clever we are in getting out of tight spots. And I think that one thing that I have always thought to myself, looking back on how many close scrapes, they're not even so close scrapes, I managed to wiggle out of with these outrageous stories and things. And I think it's because when you're in denial, you really believe what denial is feeding you. You believe these lies that you're telling you yourself. Your own that you a really effective liar because you're honestly not even aware of the fact that you're lying. And you, or you have told the story to yourself over and over again so much it becomes your truth. That, and that's the only way I can kind of explain the way that I was able to progress as far as I did. And the people around you, they, they're not looking for an alcoholic. They're not looking at you and thinking, I wonder if she's an alcoholic. It's the last thing usually people are thinking if you are otherwise functioning in your life. So I think that that's kind of another powerful root of denial, that these lies become truths when you tell them long enough. And Ellie, really quickly, when you said yeah. that about your mindset now, you know, compared to how it was when you were, you know, feeling pity for the people who were having their coffee while you were sipping your Chardonnay. Um, yeah. <laughs> my mindset now, when I think of that policeman and what he did for me by not taking me to jail, I should have been just hugging him and so grateful. Instead, I was just so resentful. I don't know. It's just, it really, I believe everything that Amanda said about it being an, something in our minds that makes us see things very differently than how they really are. Absolutely. The yeah. physical components of it are, are becoming, the more sober I get, the more sick I was. <laughs> really? Mm-hmm. Because so I can look back right. and sort of see, oh, wow, as my brain is healing, I can, these behaviors seem more and more completely bizarre to me, but they, they're not. And, and then when you talk to other people in recovery, you realize that you're really not unique, that we all do these oh, things. Nice. And so there's right. got to be some sort of commonality there, some sort of physical commonality. Mm. Another the next piece, too, we, I just wanted oh, to throw in is, is the other people in your life that, are, that aid you in your denial because they don't want to see it either. And, exactly. And, and, yeah. They, they enable you. They're, they're in denial of what they're seeing or they try to be. I mean, that's very common, too. And so you think you're getting away with things. I mean, these are the getting away with things is not something I ever experienced myself. Oh God, I did. I I just never got out of things, but that and but I was still in denial. It, it, it but uh, extreme denial, and we'll we'll I'll I'll get to that later on some examples. But I mean, it's amazing to me how both of you just shared about people in your lives want you know believing what you were saying, and it's so blatantly mm-hmm. obvious that or turning not even necessarily believing, but turning a blind eye. And so right, and that, that example that I gave, I don't even know that my husband and I ever talked about it. I think he might have tried to talk to me about it, and I just said no, and yep. that was the end of it. I mean, how bizarre is that, really, if you think yeah. about it? Anyway, yeah. so there you go. All right. Well, the next thing that we wanted to talk about had to do with emotions and denial. And alcoholics and addicts, they vacillate between feelings of superiority and inferiority. We've talked before on the show about the quote-unquote arrogant doormat or the egomaniac with an inferiority complex. 
they vacillate between feelings of mania and depression and typically suffer from tremendous anxiety and fear. They use drugs and alcohol to cope with these strong and painful emotions, but this only provides temporary relief and is counterproductive because when the effects wear off, the feelings are still there. Mm-hmm. And now they are compounded by shame and guilt and remorse. For an alcoholic or addict, the, the usual response to these new emotions is to drink or use again. The fact that it did not solve anything does not register with them. In addition, substance abusers almost always have low self-esteem and deep-seated emotional issues that are rooted in childhood. They often say things like, I never felt like I fit in, or I never felt good enough. They did not know how to deal with negative emotions. When they had their first drink or drug, that changed. Instantly, they had relief from painful feelings. They felt like they fit in, and they didn't feel bad about themselves anymore. This is where the emotional denial begins. While under the influence, problems and painful emotions don't exist, it seemed to be a real solution because it worked. What they did not know is that instead of being the solution, it was the the road to self-destruction via the highway of denial. And this resonates with me so strongly because I had that exact experience in childhood when I had my first taste of alcohol. I can remember all my deep-seated feelings. I've always had anxiety. They evaporated, and I remember thinking to myself, oh, this is how normal people feel. And, you know, even at that younger age, I couldn't get my hands on alcohol very often, but every time I did, I experienced that profound personality change. And that, to me, is an emotional addiction, and it carried forward through my adult life. The example that popped into my, my mind when I read all of this was that, you know, the sort of self-medicating anxiety and depression, but I would also self-medicate difficult situations or any time I had an uncomfortable emotion, I would just use alcohol to go around it. And so from the age of college on, like I was talking about before, I sort of stunted my emotional growth. And the only coping tool that I really had was to drink. And I never did it to get drunk or ruin my life. I did it because I didn't know how to experience anger or remorse or sadness or resentment. And I've talked before about how when I became a mother at the age of 33, I had my daughter and I left a full-time job and I decided to stay home because I thought that's what quote-unquote good mothers did. And within two or three months, I realized I was in way over my head because I, you know, was basically a... 33-year-old teenager, and, you know, I, I really felt that this mother's, motherhood thing was harder than I thought it would be. It wasn't, I didn't feel equipped to do it. All those feelings of I'm not good enough, or I don't fit in, or I can't do this came to the surface, and I did what I had always done, which is reach for a drink, and what I realized in hindsight is that I already had a drinking problem. I, who knows when the alcoholic line is really crossed? It sort of depends on how you define it. But I think of myself as an alcoholic then because I went for the only tool that had ever worked for me, which is to start drinking. The motherhood really was like throwing gasoline on an already growing fire for me. And my drinking escalated pretty quickly. And that's to me, ties back to, you know, not making the connection between the fact that the alcohol is really at the root of the problem, not the fact that motherhood is harder than I thought. You know, I can come up with all the, if you had my life, you'd drink too. Whatever the situation is, I can certainly understand not making that connection because I thought I was reaching for the one thing that fixed everything. Take Good Care is a new collection of recovery readings inspired by the Bubble Hour. If you love the encouragement and support you find here on this podcast, then this new book is for you. 
Visit thebubblehour.com for more information or check the show notes for a link to purchase. You'll find Take Good Care on Amazon Worldwide. Take Good Care, recovery reading inspired by the Bubble Hour, the perfect gift for yourself and friends. Help others find the message of recovery we champion on the Bubble Hour. Plus, get access to the entire backlist ad-free by joining us on Patreon. Patron support helps with the ongoing expense of making free versions of the show available, as well as the cost to make new content like our spin-off podcast, Tiny Bubbles. Become a Bubble Hour patron today at patreon.com slash thebubblehour and help us help others through stories of strength and hope. I read somewhere years ago that children of alcoholics grow up with three very dangerous rules, and the rules are don't trust, don't steal, and don't talk. And, you know, I kind of learned from an early age to suppress my emotions just to survive. And so I think that for me, alcohol kind of filled in the gap. I was always trying to be so perfect to make everything right within my family circle. And I always felt like I was supposed to be the strong, responsible one. And kind of, kind of like the parent, even though I was the child. And I don't know, it was just like a switch went off. When I finally discovered alcohol, it was like a, I don't know, it just was a magic elixir. It fixed everything. And I, it took away all those things that I stuffed down for so long. And, or it, you know, it didn't take it away, of course, but temporarily it was, it was just a little bit of peace. And so that's kind of how I view this. It was just a behavior pattern based on my childhood, I think. And, of course, other things, too. And there's always plenty of excuses and plenty of people who grew up in much, much worse circumstances than my own. But I don't know. To me, it just relates to that more than anything. Amanda? Yeah, I, I understand. I, I get that a lot. And, you know, for me, you know, when talking about how it starts in early childhood, I know that my biological father was an alcoholic and, you know, he was out of my life by the time I was five. And I always felt very abandoned by him. So I, 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 I already had that going. And then I moved around a lot when I was young. And so I, I definitely felt out of place. And again, the first drink, I was like, oh, hey, I feel comfortable better. now. I feel, I feel better. And for me, I know that the way I handled like social situations, I always felt a little bit uncomfortable. I didn't feel like I fit in the town that I grew up in. I felt like I was different from everyone. And and that kind of carried on into my adult life, but I, I hit it really well because I was the one leading the charge with people, and yeah. I did that with alcohol. And so I came across to the, out, the outside world as someone being very confident and the party girl and the ringleader, and I was like, hey, let's go out for beers, and half the time I was thinking, you know, having a beer before I went out. So I could walk in the door and already feel comfortable. And if I didn't, by when I walked in the door, there was one in my hand within two minutes. Mm-hmm. And, and so I really masked how I was feeling inside. And even to myself, 
I just thought I was this crazy ringleader party girl, and I didn't even recognize the fact that I had to have a drink the minute I walked in the door, or I would sit in a corner and Mm -hmm. feel very shy and quiet and not comfortable at all being there. And but I really, I really hid that from myself very well, and Mm -hmm. from others too. But I really hid that from myself. Something really that just dawned on me now talking about this. Uh, I I, I think it's interesting how when I got sober, or a lot of us experienced this too, I think I didn't realize how anxious and shy I really was. Because I... Prickly stiff. Numbed out. Or I I, I would have absolutely said that I was a social butterfly, and as long as I had a drink in me, I was. (laughs) What's interesting Um, is I've since become a social butterfly, and without the alcohol. In variety, right. It takes a little time. Yeah. 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 And like you, Amanda, I was I was always the ringleader. I wasn't so much the party girl because, of course, mine was always pretty hidden. But I was always the responsible one. But just the weird little patterns that that I see looking back, and yet here I was the one hiding the most. Yep. All right. Well, the next um, section we wanted to talk about was behavior patterns of denial. And family and friends and employers notice changes in the behavior of an alcoholic or addict usually long before the person with the disease does. This is the first indicator that someone is in denial about their disease. Tragically, as it progresses, the individual barely notices the changes and deterioration because they happen so gradually, day after day, and seem normal to the sufferer. Typical behaviors include, but are not limited to, and this is, I think, somebody, these behaviors are listed who is slipping into addiction, is being late to work, inability to hold a job, getting arrested, ending relationships when people criticize their drinking or using, spending rent money on drugs or alcohol, not keeping commitments, driving under the influence for personal hygiene, frequently, uh, frequent, frequenting dangerous neighborhoods, and living on the street. Um, again, the alcoholic or addict does not notice or pretends not to notice these behaviors as they are related to substance abuse, which, as related to substance abuse, which they clearly are. Denial is a psychological process by which we protect ourselves from things which threaten us by blocking knowledge of these things from our awareness. It is a defense which distorts reality. It can keep us from feeling the pain and uncomfortable truths about things we do not want to face. If we cannot feel or see the consequences of our actions, then everything is fine and we can continue to live without making changes. Denial comes in many forms. It is not just for chemical dependence or alcoholics either. If we are human, we have denial about something, our relationships, our behavior, our health, our family. We all want everything to, quote, unquote, be fine. We have denial to keep us from pain. For those of us who are chemically dependent, however, to keep our denial is to die. In the process, we create pain for those around us, and we have denial about that, too. To recover, we need to see our denial and see how it works so that we can loosen the grip of our addictions. Denial is replaced by truth and acceptance. To be in denial feels like anger, fear, shame, and isolation. Instead of being cold and cut off from ourselves and others, we can be warm and begin to grow again. I had lots of thoughts about this section, and I'll just briefly touch upon a couple of them. Because I think that in the list of typical behaviors where it's talking about driving an influence, living on the street, poor personal hygiene, absolutely, those are part and parcel of addiction and typically more in later stage addictions. But... I would put at the top of that, of a list of patterns, uh, behavior patterns of denial is turning to alcohol to get through something, anything. 
you know, whether it's mm-hmm. happy, going to a party, like you were talking about, a social event, or getting to that 5 o'clock drink and you're thinking about it at 3 o'clock and you just can't wait for your little reward at the end of the day, you do not have to be drinking, you know, a bottle of two of wine a night or crashing to trees drunk in your car. I mean, there's, there's the emotional addiction to alcohol is very subtle. And in its earlier stages, I think it looks a lot like everybody else is drinking. Like, I just want to change the way I feel. I want to have more fun at this party. Or I don't want to be sad at this wake. Or, I, you know, my kids have driven me crazy all day, so I'm just going to have this glass of wine. But for those of us who have the disease of addiction, we are unable to turn that off. We turn to that coping mechanism over and over again until it progresses to the physical addiction or the typical behaviors that you think of when you think of somebody in late stage addiction. So I've always kind of, in my mind at least, I've qualified the difference between behavior patterns of an emotional addiction and the behavior patterns of a physical and emotional addiction. Because I think the stigma of alcoholism, what typically pops into people's heads, is the late stage addictive behaviors. Many, many, many of us are recovering before we come even close to a DUI or even close to living on the street because we realize that there's emotionally addictive behavior. I mean, we talk about food addictions as being a sister addiction to alcoholism and and drug addiction, and I can understand why. Because for me, when I'm eating for emotional reasons or I'm gaining weight or I'm turning to food for comfort, I'm really not acknowledging what I'm doing in my own mind, and the first thing they tell you to do is keep a food journal. And so you look at what you're eating, and you go, oh, my God, you know, I have no idea that I was eating that much because I'm doing it while I'm watching TV or I'm reading a book. And then it's the same thing, but with alcohol instead of food. And it's the closest comparison that I can make for other people who are not addicted to alcohol to understand how that emotional denial can sneak up on you. Yes, I totally agree with everything you just said, Ellie. And, you know, when I think of how other people started to notice the changes in my behavior, very few people were close enough to me to actually notice because I really was good at maintaining my my little game, my facade, and, you know, I knew where to go and not to go and who to hang out with and who to stay away from. But I think for me, I had so very few feelings about my drinking or really anything because I was really pretty numb. And at the time, toward the end, it felt like everyone else had so many feelings about my drinking. And to me, it felt like they were all, you know, having all of their feelings in front of me at once, if that makes sense. I don't, I didn't, it was like people were just kind of, it was just an outpouring of feelings about me, which made me completely uncomfortable. And I didn't really know what else to do, so I made an agreement with myself for the millionth time to stop drinking, you know, just so that everyone would stop having all of their feelings at me regarding my drinking. I don't know. If, does that make sense? Like, I, I yeah. felt like people just constantly, not many, but just a few were all the time asking me about it and talk, trying to talk to me about it. And even though it was just a few people, and it was probably a lot less than it seemed, but at the time it felt like I was under a microscope, just kind of being thoroughly examined by the few people who were aware that, you know, my feeble attempts at drinking moderately had spiraled into full-blown alcoholism. And oh, absolutely. For me, yeah. yeah, for me it was just, that was part of it. When people started to come to me with it, and even though I didn't really have any feelings about it that I was aware of, it's finally, something kind of finally sunk in. 
And mainly what I want to share here is it's true that instead of being cold and totally cut off from yourself and even others, what I found to be true is that we can be warm and we can begin to grow again. You know, and those few people that were also heavy drinkers, two of my very best friends were two of the people who kept yelling their feelings at me, not really yelling, but that's how it felt. And I don't know, and it, it, it sunk in, you know, just little by little. And I'm really stubborn, and I don't like to be told what to do. In fact, I hate being told what to do, but for some reason I kind of listened, and eventually all these things added up, and it kind of, it, for whatever reason, it stuck. I had different people in my life talking to me about my drinking, and I just felt like, God, will you get off my back? Yeah, you know, it was just, me. It was just one incident. It was just one thing, and but the one thing was like a weekly thing, or there was something, I would do something outrageous, and, and it was on a more regular basis, and what I did is I distanced myself from those people. Because you know I was like, just get away from me. What's that, Lisa? Well, you knew who you, knew who you could hide it from and who you couldn't. Yeah. And so, yeah. Yeah. And I, so I found myself hanging out with different people and you hear that too. We tend to do that a lot. I, I started to hang out with people who drank more like me and who didn't judge me and were probably maybe in the same situation as me, you know, and I, I, I started doing that and I would actually, I would listen somewhat, but I would just, I just wasn't ready. I wasn't ready to hear what they were saying. And, and there were things going on in my life. Some of the things that they listed up above had happened to me. But the number one thing is I never, ever was late to work or jeopardized my job. And mm-hmm. so for anything that anyone could point out to me, I would be, well, look at me. Look at me because right. I'm this wonderful at work. And and I had and I really did have everything together. I was very high functioning, but it, 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 but things were falling apart. And right. People yeah, were pointing it out to me, right. and I and I just I did feel a lot of shame. I but and but I mostly felt anger. You know, I was just really angry, and I and I guess I was also terrified that they were going to tell me that I had to stop drinking forever. So I really just didn't want to hear it. These conversations are so powerful. Uh, This, of course, is a shortened version of the original, which runs its full length, uh, closer to an hour and a half. You can hear that entirety of that conversation when you join us on Patreon. There is a link in the show notes. Otherwise, continue to listen to these fantastic backlist episodes that are available for you as a free podcast. We're so grateful that this material continues to live on and resonates with listeners. We thank you for being here. Until next time, take good care. I own it. I did that. Not proud, but that was me. And when I face it, I take back a little dignity. Not looking for excuses I just want to be free From the power Weakness had on me In a dark corner Is where shame lies to hide We think you're strong Just cause you'll keep it on the side It just stays and wait there 
Just want to be free from power. We 